Today on Arash's World, we have a very special guest, Michelle Rosenthal. Hello, how are you? Hi, hello, I'm great, thank you. And um, greetings from South Florida. Wonderful, oh, nice. Um, so I'd like you to just briefly introduce yourself. Who are you, what do you do? And then I look forward to a very interesting and insightful discussion coming up here as well. Excellent. Well, first, thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you. I love talking about trauma. I am a trauma recovery specialist. I'm an author, a speaker, and a, a trauma survivor um, who overcame almost 30 years of post-traumatic stress disorder before I found my way out to freedom. And ever since then, it's been my mission to help others heal faster than I did. So that's me in a nutshell. That's wonderful. And that is, again, very important that you have had these experiences. You have uh, learned from them. You have transformed yourself. And now you are ready to help others to, uh, to learn from it and to transform themselves as well. So um, what would be your method? How would you approach trauma? And I like the, the term trauma recovery specialist. The recovery is really important there, right? It's not just a trauma specialist, but you have recovered. So how can you help others to recover as well? What do you do? I love that you're so sensitive to language because you're right, I have recovered. And also it, it's about the idea that we all can, can recover. You know, we all can recover to varying degrees, depending on what kind of trauma, how, how it happened, when it happened. And really uh, the, the biggest thing that I see determine whether or not someone recovers is their own determination, their own decision, their own commitment, because trauma recovery, let's call it out, Arash, it is, it's hard. It's, I think in some ways, trauma recovery is almost harder than living with the symptoms of the trauma. So let's start there. And how do you pronounce your name? So I make sure I do it correctly. Arash, Arash. Arash. Okay, so I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. So how does a person recover? So there are so many different ways. So let's talk about it in terms of, the, from my perspective, there are three phases of trauma recovery and there are nine steps that take you from confusion, which is where most people begin all the way up to clarity, which is where you finish, where you can see yourself clearly, you can see others clearly and see the world. And so, so there are a bunch of different ways to go and answer your question. Number one, let's talk about it in phases and steps. And then number two, I'll talk about traditional versus alternative approaches because those are important components too. Absolutely. So um, number one, the first phase of trauma recovery, and this is just with 15 years in the field, this is how I approach it. This is not going to be in a textbook. This is notes from the field being in the trenches. From my own process, and you may see in the background, I have two therapy dogs that work with me, so you may see them walk around a little. Um, I, I have developed this approach because I know what worked for me, and then I've seen this work with clients over all of these years. So phase one, of trauma recovery is all about control. It's about not control over the outside world, it's about control over yourself, over your inside world. And in that phase of control, we talk about three things. We talk about reconnecting to yourself because trauma disconnects you. 
in a lot of ways, literally, you can feel disconnected from yourself, others, or the world just because you're different now. You have experienced something that a lot of people haven't. And so it naturally puts a distance between you and everyone else. I um, spoke at an event yesterday for NICU parents, neonatal ICU parents. And one of the survivors came up to me afterward and said, I just don't know what to do because my parents think that since this happened six months ago, I should be over it already. And I'm still in the thick of it, the trauma of it. So there's a disconnect between ourselves and everyone else. Um, but there's also, there can be a disconnect because of dissociation, because of depersonalization, which are conventional psychological terms for feeling disconnected from your own self, feeling a derealization, like a sense like the rest of the world just isn't even real anymore. So number one, in this phase of control, you have to reconnect to yourself. And I always start with reconnect to your desire to feel better. Because you can't just go from being disconnected from yourself to, oh, well, no problem. I'm, I'm reconnected right away. It doesn't work like that. So everything happens in phases across a spectrum. And so we start with reconnection in terms of just your desire to feel better. Does that make sense? Yeah, one, I think one of the issues is also that uh, many people are not very clear on who they are. And there is, to begin with, an issue with identity because uh, we have this perception of we think we're this person, but it could be the perception of our parents. It could be the perception of our friends that's kind of shaping that. And it might have things in common, but might not have things in common with things that are important to us. So uh, it's, it's really before, I think it's really finding out who we are and then be able to connect. And one of the things, as, as you're saying, it's absolutely true. It takes a lot of work. It's difficult. It's like, it's, it's like a war in a way. It feels like a war. It feels like a battle. But yeah. we have more control than we think or than we assume we have in many ways of ourselves, not the outside world, not others, but of ourselves within our realm. And you make an excellent point is you have to be ready for it. You have to want it. Mm -hmm. You have to want to have that change or that connection or that healing. Otherwise it won't work. It's uh, when people say they want to quit smoking and they do nothing to do so. They don't have the will, determination, the desire to do so. We can't help them in that situation. Yeah. You're so right. I was working with an alcoholic this morning. And the fact is that she's in my office, but that that's it, right? She's not, she doesn't want to have to do the work. And I get it because I sat in talk therapy for five and a half years thinking I showed up. That was like the extent of what You're I doing did. Time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like now, like the therapist, it's your job to like fix this. And I did nothing between our sessions. So and I that's giving I away control it. because you expect the other to do it, but it's within your hands. And I fully understand right. that this is an unhealthy way of coping with it, but that is because we feel dissociated, because we're not connected with ourselves, we go towards substance abuse or food is also, and there are many other things, workaholic, you become a workaholic. There are tons Absolutely. of addictions out there that are causing harm to, to ourselves because of that disconnect that you're talking about. That's right. And I heard something this morning because I'm always studying, I'm always learning. I heard a lecture this morning actually on addiction, and they were saying that all addiction is driven by an anxiety disorder which I thought was so apropos, right? We're always just trying to feel better. And I love that you brought in the word identity already because that's 
where we're headed, right? It's phase three, but the fact is that it's in every phase because who you think you are and how you choose who you are, which we're never taught. You know, we're taught our ABCs, we're taught our one, two, threes, we're taught all kinds of stuff in, in kindergarten through 12th grade, but nobody ever tells you, nobody ever teaches you, hey, you know what? You get to decide who you are. But absolutely. I mean, we say be yourself and I was always confused yeah. with that. It's like, what does that mean? I mean, what, what, how do I do that? Uh, right. Well, and we assume that people know how to be themselves, but those are again, people who do not connect with their own identity. Those who say that, you know, so it's, That's it's right. again, a lot of work, a lot of self-discovery, a lot of um, also thinking about the past. I'd like to mention that too, because I think the past has a huge influence on, on our present. And you are talking about the past in, in, in uh, the, your first book, Conquering the Past, uh, Before the World Intruded, Conquering the Past and um, Creating the Future. So that mm -hmm. connection between past and future, I love that. And uh, your, your other book, if, if my knowledge is correct, is Your Life After Trauma, How to Reclaim Your Identity. So powerful practices to reclaim. And that is, again, the assumption that we have our identity to get it back in a way, right? What well, can you say about the influence of past and identity and the future, maybe briefly here as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I just want to bookmark that idea of reclaim because sometimes you're reclaiming something that you had and you lost it. And sometimes you're reclaiming your right to something you never had. So it's using that word reclaim in two ways. And so, so you're right, the past does influence the present consciously and unconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. Consciously because we've decided, oh, I'm this person because this happened to me. And unconsciously because your neurological patterns and your unconscious programming is always operating in every moment. And that is what this, this first phase of control is about. So step one is connecting with your desire to feel better step two starts the identity work because step two is about committing to your results and creating a healing intention which is really really at the bottom of it all about identity it's about who do you want to become if you were going to assess who are you today is part of the healing intention and who do you want to be and what happens, what has to happen for you to bridge the gap in between? That's really what a healing intention is all and, about. And it is interesting because we see it in terms of our jobs and careers. Like, this is who I want to be. I want to be, as a child, you say, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a doctor and so on, a lawyer. But we don't see it in terms of who we are as a personality, as who we want to be as a, as a human being. And that is lacking, I think, in our society too. That focus on like, well, okay, but what are the other qualities we're looking for? That's the job aspect. That's okay. Many people identify fully with their jobs, but that's only part of the identity. That's actually the, the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more when we talk about identity here. So much more. And actually in phase one of trauma recovery, that's too much, in my opinion. Trauma survivors usually cannot see the future. So identity in, in the broadest scope of who do you want to be, it's too much. With, with phase one, it's about creating that healing intention, which speaks to identity, but in a much more tangible, manageable way, because I literally ask people, what do you want to stop doing? What that. do you want to start yeah. doing? Yes. And what and will that allow you to do? 
Mm -hmm. So we're not asking them to conceptualize who they're going to be, but really like breaking it down into choices and actions, choices and actions. What are you doing now that you want to stop doing? What step are you by step to not overwhelm start? them. Absolutely. Yeah. Step exactly. by step approach. Yes. Yeah. Because it gives you something tangible. Like, mm -hmm. well, I, I, I don't sleep and I really want to sleep. Okay. Well, you and I might say, well, I want to be the kind of person who sleeps deeply through the night and restfully wakes up peacefully every morning. But a trauma survivor is not thinking forward like that. They're in the moment, like, I want to stop having nightmares every night. You know, I want to start sleeping eight full hours. There, it's, it's more mechanical. And in that first phase, I think it should be more mechanical because trauma survivors need two things, safety and control. And phase one is all about reclaiming that sense of control. And the third step in there after connection and commitment is consistency. What are you doing every day to work your recovery? Because it will only work for you when you work it daily. So and, and even with with addiction, when we talk about it there, it's, it's so much harder to control that because you are driven and you basically feel you don't have freedom, but there are maybe moments of freedom that, that moment, that single moment that you can decide and to make that moment grow and that empowerment that comes with that moment and that day and that week. And so slowly grow, but be ready that it's going to be the there are going to be a lot of detours and uh, obstacles along the way and and setbacks and to not see that as a, as a failure of seeing it okay this is the path there are roadblocks ahead but i'm accepting that because the end goal is i want to be better i want to get rid of this that's causing the source of my anguish and anxiety yeah. That's right. And that that moves us into the second phase, actually, of what we're talking about, because that second phase is all about change. Mm -hmm. And so what you're talking about is stepping into that place and saying, OK, all of this has to change. And, and in that second phase, it's really about diagnosing the root cause, because it's not just today that this is happening. This is driven by something you know, as Absolutely. you were saying earlier, your Absolutely. past is influencing your present. Yeah. And then I and then. The next step is really designing the desired solution. So if, if this is the root cause of the problem, what's the solution to that problem? What, what, what's happening there? Um, so I'll give you an example. The client I was working with this morning, um, her, her mother abandoned all, all, all four of the children. She was raised by an aunt and an uncle who were horrible to her. So she grew up without any love married a narcissist and then took that abuse for the next 27 years so now she's divorced but carrying the weight of that abandonment as a child and then the weight of all that abuse she started drinking during her marriage and she just never has stopped and so in there it's identifying okay and she can she can tell you exactly the day that in her marriage she realized i just need to start drinking because it's the only way to survive this mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it's identifying that kind of root cause, the abuse, and before that, the abandonment, and then the solution. Like, what is that solution to, to, I call it, we have to soothe the wound, and we have to strip the story, and we have to shift the meaning. So that ultimately, in this change phase, you are doing those three things so that you can finally just develop new programming. And consciously and unconsciously and we'll get into what that looks like in a minute 
Um, but that change phase is really, really critical. And that's where that hard work is. And that's the place that people mostly fall out off track and then have to pull themselves back on track. I'm sure you know people who struggled with that. Well, yeah. And so you mentioned narcissism, and that's something that uh, I feel like I'm kind of a magnet to that. There's like attracting them towards me. And I, I think I realize it's because I'm a highly sensitive person. And so uh, that is, again, people who don't uh, um, uh, set their borders, they don't have the boundaries uh, with others, who try to please others, uh, and who have a lot of empathy too. And that is often and taken and people abuse these kinds of people because they say okay i can do whatever i want and it it, it gives them power so you you they trample all over you and mm -hmm. uh and i think that's really important to that gaining regaining control and and power and saying okay no this is too much this is the line i'm uh, you can't cross this line and to be able to again not be driven by i want to please others but I will do whatever I think is right to me, to my identity, to my principles and so on, and not go over, uh, not cross that line that I have my integrity and so on. And that is a struggle because there are a lot of narcissists out there. There are, there are. And the more people talk about it, the more you realize there are so many, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think anyone was talking about them as much as we're talking about them now. But the good news is that once you move through that control phase and you start reconnecting to yourself and creating that commitment to your healing intention and putting in place that consistency, and then you learn how to identify the real root of the problem and design the solution and implement the new programming, then you get, you get the, you know, the prize of moving up to that third level of recovery, which is all about create. And that's where you really deliberately create your post-trauma identity. Because at that level, when you've got that internal control and you've made all of those changes, so you've cleared out the past, resolved it, reset it, whatever you want to call it. Now you have the, the emotional, mental, spiritual, even physical bandwidth to start saying, okay, who do I want to be? If I were going to choose, what are the traits, the qualities, the characteristics? What are the words that I want to describe me? You know, everybody's big on talking about values, but I think before we can even talk about values, you have to talk about traits. Like what kind of person do you want to be before you decide what values go with that? And then once you identify that vision, then you move into chunking it down, right? Creating a strategy. I love working with people to create a 90 day strategy for their post-trauma identity process. You know, we all do that in business, for example, you work in quarterly processes, but bringing that into your own personal process is powerful. And then the, the last step in that create phase, once you know who it is you want to be, once you have a strategy for implementation, the last step is integration, right? is being able to blend who you've decided to be with all of your past history. Mm -hmm. Because we don't need to try to like shut out, ignore, or pretend that the past didn't exist. It just needs to have its rightful space in who we are. When we start this process of trauma recovery, it's like the past is like this and we're this tiny little being. And when we finish, we're like this, and the past is this tiny little aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's the transformation from powerless to powerful, 
which is at the base of this whole process. I love your approach. That's wonderful. And so I, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Dr. Loretta Bruning, and she was explaining the, the, uh, the brain chemistry that goes behind mm -hmm. these kind of experiences. So because you had traumatic experiences in the past, you have cortisol when there are similar experiences to that. And the, the cortisol is like basically creating all that fear and anxiety. But once you start taking charge and taking control of it, serotonin can take over and then you feel better. Better. And so each step feels better and easier. The problem is, however, uh, you get serotonin by putting others down, by being a bully. So that also gives you that rush. So we want to have that without trampling over other people, without bullying others through a more well, natural and healthy way of, of getting that. Well, I'm sure she also told you that your brain releases serotonin every time you smile. Well. literally when your lips go up your brain releases serotonin so that's a quick easy and very cheap way to create serotonin and actually make other people feel good while you're doing it instead of bad mm -hmm. exactly and and these uh, when you make others feel bad it's up to a point it might feel good at the moment but the, the satisfaction you get won't be deep because these people are lacking control of themselves i, I always see people who try to control others they're not in control of themselves. And so it's like a sign of insecurity, uh, a lack of confidence and all of that. So even though uh, they, they might get that, that rush, it's kind of like a drug then, it's not something that will last. But once you have that empowerment, once you feel strong and confident that is both within and without, that feels so powerful and it feels so good. You feel like I can handle any situation, even if it's traumatic, I got this. That's right. There's a great book by Susan Jeffers called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And the hypothesis of that book is that at the base of all fear is just one thought. And the thought is, I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And so the flip side, obviously, is that if you just can get to a place where you feel like whatever it is, I can handle it, then you've really flipped the script on everything. And, and, and I the, love the, that simplicity. The issue is also the unconscious. So many times I say, oh, yeah, I can handle it. This is not stressing me out, but I'm kind of deluding myself because it is. So it's it's getting that that whole that integrity that you mentioned. I love that because it's like we're, we're holistic. It's like everything is connected. It's our bodies interdependent, our brain, our heart, our, our, our feelings, our emotions. So we need to have a plan that addresses all of those things. And this is, and uh, again, what you mentioned about alternative and traditional methods, I'd like to briefly touch upon that as well, because I find like medical professions are looking at, okay, what's the symptom? I will take away the symptom. You can't sleep, here are some sleeping pills. But right. that does not solve the issue. That does not bring about health. It just trying to control the situation, but the fire is still burning underneath. And I, I have an issue with that because I think we have to get to the root of the problem and the sleeping will arrange itself. Once we are connected with ourselves, we feel satisfied with who we are. We have that confidence. We're going to be fine. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I'm walking proof of that. <laughs> so exactly, I, I exactly. agree so with you 100%. And I think the medical profession is not designed to go to root cause. The medical profession is designed to write a prescription. So that's why I think holistic is such an important aspect here. So let's talk about how, how do we actually do the work of those three phases that I outlined? Because of course, there, I think on the conventional side, of course, there's talk therapy. And I, I think that that has a real place. I think that 
being able to put language, to recover language, to retrieve language, trauma impacts the language center of the brain. So a lot of times we'll have experiences, but we can't describe how we feel. We can't talk about what happened. So I think talk therapy from a conventional perspective is a great place to begin. There's power in language. It's a relief, whether you're writing or you're talking to a person, you're, you're, you're letting it go. And it's huge. When we do that, we feel a sense of relief and it is definitely helping. But again, as you say, it's not, it's not the whole deal. Yeah. No, because you're right. The unconscious programming is powerful. Yeah. And, you know, let's just talk about the fact that studies show that 47 and a half percent of the time you're thinking ahead, 47 and a half percent of the time you're thinking behind. And then the other percentage, which is, I think, like five percent, you're actually in the present moment. Well, if you're only in the present moment, five percent of the time, what's running the show? And we mind. know, we all know, we say live in the present, enjoy the present moment. We know right. that, right? right? And we're supposed to know it, but we don't act on it. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because yeah. We're biologically driven to survive. So you have to be looking ahead to see threat and you have to be looking behind to learn the lesson. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to do both of those things and be present at the same time. Mm -hmm. The fact is we're way more safe in the present moment when we're present because we'll see the threat coming and we'll be able to retrieve the lesson because we're present, right? Uh, but I think to, to answer your question about recovery, so on the, on the conventional side, there's talk therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy. It's, it's a lot of behavior modification and analysis, right? It's a lot of talking about what happened, why, why you feel the way you do, all that stuff which is important and, and learning to be aware, self-aware. I love mindfulness-based, you know, processes, which are not necessarily mainstream, but they're getting there. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, on the, on the conventional side are all the big pharma prescriptions. And I'm not even going to talk about that. That's outside the scope of my practice anyway. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but I think it's overdone. So, um, so where I operate and the place that I love is in a place that bridges that, that chasm because we, we need to be holistic, but we also can benefit from the conventional process. And most people begin conventionally. They begin with talk therapy. They begin with cognitive behavior therapy. And those are great ways to establish more control. The problem is that they don't reach the unconscious mind. They are yes. only in the yes. conscious mind. And your conscious mind is just 12 to 15% of your brain. Yes. So you really need to cross the aisle to the alternative side to reach the other 88% of your brain, which is actually driving all the symptoms that you have. And, and so in there, I mean, there are a slew of ways to approach recovery. I, I personally got trained in the modalities that led me to freedom, which are hypnosis, neuro-linguistic programming, and coaching, solid evidence-based, scientifically-backed processes. Um, and then you also have energy psychology processes, things like Psych-K, and energy transformation processes, like emotional freedom technique, thought field therapy, tapas acupressure technique, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. When I was, when I first started my trauma recovery, it was not conventionally accepted. This is back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. um, today, of course, it has a lot of scientific data behind it. It's more on the conventional side of things now, but 
these are all ways to access the unconscious and reprogram not just the unconscious patterning, but also the neurological structures that are holding and have embedded all of the traumatic information and emotion. And, and it seems to me like we are haunted by the past and we're scared of the future. And that puts us in a very difficult place. Most yeah. people. And I think we, we have to also generalize trauma. Of course, there are some who, who suffer serious trauma. And yes, it is debilitating. It is awful. But we all suffer trauma. And it, it's something I think now we're, we're talking more about it. It's like even like day to day life is traumatic. I mean, we have a pandemic and we have all these issues going around us. But uh, it's, again, important to, to, to realize it, to look at it, to, to deal with it and not to run away from it to accept it, to embrace it in many ways. I've heard the idea of trauma like energy, and that's kind of energy that you can, you can use in different ways. If you, if you control it, if you can guide it, channel it, then you can use it towards good and towards improving yourself, towards transforming yourself, as you are saying. That's very interesting, and I agree. And I think, too, it's important to recognize the difference between big T and little t trauma. That's true. Right, because big but it does trauma, accumulate and does build up over time. Oh, well. oh it totally yeah. does. Yeah. I always talk to my clients like you're like a pitcher, mm -hmm. and a pitcher, like just think of a pitcher, you have like 10 quarts, and there's just if someone puts 10 quarts of water in your pitcher, the next teaspoon that someone puts in is going to overflow the pitcher. And trauma is like that. All of the the little t traumas fill up your pitcher, and of course, the big t traumas overflow your pitcher and the big t trauma is the that kind of trauma that's completely life altering it changes who you are physically mentally emotionally spiritually whereas little t trauma is like this was a really hard day at work or i didn't get that promotion or this person broke up with me and i really really love this person they're traumatic moments because baseline definition of trauma is any experience that feels less than good which means the day we're born we're all trauma survivors <laughs> But that little t trauma is um, more like a, a blip on your radar than it is the flat line of your life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, absolutely. so absolutely. It's, like, it's a good way to, to sort of distinguish types of trauma. Because and it's, it's the, the same with stress. I mean, they say we need a moderate amount of stress and that actually, that's good. That's good for performance, yeah. so driving us on. But it's when it becomes overwhelming, that is an issue and then it becomes chronic and uh, that is causing havoc on your body, on your mind, on your health. And that is, that is, a, uh, that is a warning sign when you get to that point. It is. And I think, you know, one of the things that we all can be doing is brain training every day, whether it's meditation, breath work, or literally I have, you know, I make audios that are, that train the brain for peace and calm, because when you, you, you spoke about like, we all need that moderate amount of stress, the brain needs exercise in the areas that you want to strengthen it. So you don't have to wait for a trauma to occur. You don't have to wait for like, reaching the bottom of your your barrel to to realize oh i need i need i need to change you can be strengthening your brain developing neural pathways for peace and calm every day i have this little 20 minute audio that i give to all of my clients and actually it's on my website so i mean i give it to everybody because i believe in it so much because the effects of it are huge and every single one of my clients says to me I barely ever get to the end of the audio. Like, I don't know where my mind goes, but like, I'm not present. 
And, and, and they're worried about that, right? And I say, no, that's the best thing ever. That means that your conscious mind has just allowed your unconscious to really get in and start reprogramming you for peace and calm. That's awesome. So I, I think that we all can be strengthening ourselves all the time in a lot of different areas, though, same way you would work out your body, you need to work mm -hmm. out your brain Absolutely. so that you're ready, so that you're healthy, so you're prepared. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of stigma here of looking for that help, of going to see a mental health professional in our society. It's changing, but it's kind of still gradual. And I think, mm -hmm. how can we deal with that stigma of like, you know, letting people know, like, you know, we all need mental health help. I think that's pretty much everybody needs it. It's natural. But again, once you do it, you realize like how, how, how good it is, how beneficial it is to you of making things clear and of, of dealing with your, with your anxiety and fear and traumas and, and what have you. I think, I think you're right. That's such a good point. And it's a great place for us to sort of bring everything together to a close, because if you're comfortable reaching out, you are on your way to reclaiming your life. And I like to talk about it this way. If you want to make a five-star meal, you can buy a bunch of cookbooks, you can buy all the raw ingredients and you can try, but your dish is not going to be five-star because you are not a trained chef. But if you really, really want to learn how to cook at a five-star level, what are you going to do? You're going to hire somebody to teach you to do that. Wonderful. And we do that all the time. If you want to work out and and fitness you know, trainers, exactly. Shave your body, Coaches, you, yeah. you hire a trainer. We reach out for help in all these different areas. Yeah. You want to learn to drive, you buy look, you want to learn to speak French, you hire someone to do that, right? So we're used to that. So what is it really about? I think it's it's about an innate shame mm -hmm. that we would need help. Mm -hmm. inside who we are mm -hmm. and that just gets to the idea of I'm not good enough right mm -hmm. which every human on the planet has a little bit of I'm not good enough itis mm -hmm. and nobody wants to admit that mm -hmm. and and so I think part of the stigma you know we think of stigma as against something on the outside but I also think it's against something on the inside like I don't want to admit that I have that issue or have that problem or need help in some area. So I don't want any of those people should just be quiet too. So it's a little self-referential, I think, and this might be getting a little too meta and esoteric, but, but I don't think it's as cut and dry as just it's stigma. I think it's reflexive and, and we don't really talk about that, do we? But it's being human. I mean, yeah. as a human, you're supposed to deal with these emotions, your your feelings, and and your doubts. Uh, I think That's doubts, right. if if you can really listen to them, and uh, your fear as well. It's it's telling you something. It's like your pain. If we didn't have pain, it would be terrible because we don't know what's wrong with our body. It's 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 an alert. And that's the same with when we go through these feelings. And again, I think really important to be in touch with one's feelings. And why do I feel this way? Why does this trigger me and make me angry? Why am I upset about this? Why am I frustrated? Why am I unhappy in my mm -hmm. life? And again, the, the, the coach, the mental health professional and so on will help you to figure it out because not everyone has a psych degree and a lot of people are not aware of this. And it, for me, it was just recently just really discovering the unconscious and really accepting it. Because I had studied it before. Yeah, but there's the unconscious. But no, it is for real. 
And once you would deal with it, you see the results and you say, yes, now I actually have proof. It's evidence-based as you are saying as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree 100%. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for, for being here in Arash's world. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. And uh, we could go on for hours, but uh, I know we, at some point we do have to end the conversation. But thank you so much for this wonderful uh, conversation and your uh, wonderful approach. I fully agree with you. This is something that uh, thank you for doing the difference that you're making for everyone else as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for spreading the word about these kind of topics. It's so, so important. And I'm always happy to field questions. So if anybody has a follow-up question about this, you can just find me at mytraumacoach.com. That's also where that that uh, invitation to download, it's a free- MP3, I will provide so. the link for yeah, sure. If yes. anybody wants to start brain training, get on it. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The difference that you are. Thank you. Take care.